0: Welcome to the Prismatic Academy Podcast. I'm Chrissy Marie and this is episode 25, The Business Case for Women in Investing with Terry Hansen Mead. Now, I know I haven't been as vocal about this for any new listeners. This podcast and the topics we explore are grounded in spiritual, physical, and financial wellness. We aren't so much searching for answers as we are asking questions and opening conversations that challenge limiting beliefs and barriers not just to gain a greater sense of balance, but also to light that spark of potential that lives inside each of us. We are about sharing stories, growing community and learning together, especially when it comes to the difficult, lesser known and unspoken topics. Here I have to admit that as a woman, the topic of investing and venture capital has always been an intimidating one. My exposure to learning about it throughout my 30 something years has been limited, and if I'm being honest, in my curiosity to learn more about this world, I've faced a lot of resistance. Perhaps you, like me, have once considered starting your own business or service. You have this amazing idea, and after doing all of the legwork and bringing it together, you have a polished product that you're proud of. You've proven that you alone can make this successful, but the time and effort and energy you put into it isn't reflecting the financial goals of your business. You know you could do so much more with stronger capital and backing behind you and you even managed to convince yourself that you're ready to make that transition into expanding and sharing your idea with a broader audience of investors. You do your homework, you revise your business plan, you create an incredible presentation that gains you a meeting with several investors. You walk into rooms a little nervous about your pitch but ultimately, you're really excited about your work. You're polished and you deliver you get to be proud of yourself for coming this far but in the end you're left with little more than a polite smile and short messages that sound like thank you for your time we think you're onto something great we love your idea but the even shorter message that often isn't even spoken out loud can be summed up into one single word no no it's not exactly the word you want to hear but it's definitely one women in business hear a lot. Sometimes a no is a good thing, especially when given critically and objectively. But in the world of business and investing, no tends to be the default response for women aspiring to bring their talent and ideas to bigger markets. To put this into perspective for you, in 2018, only 2.2% of the total 130% Billion dollars in venture capital money went to women founders or teams led by women. This meager number is a small decline from 2017. And what more? Women-run VCs raised nearly a billion dollars more that year. So even though women are becoming more active in investing, there is still a disparity between where those dollars are going. They almost always end up back in the hands of companies run by men. Now, this isn't intended to be a discussion about the battle of the sexes, but rather is a business case for women in investing and what could happen when we invest intentionally in diversity. My guest Terry speaks wonderfully to this, and I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say. She is super knowledgeable in this space, and I couldn't be more grateful to have her share her insights with us. She is a speaker, investor, author, expert, fellow podcaster, wife, mother, and so much more. And with that, I'll stop talking and let her share her story. Without any further ado, here's episode 25, The Business Case for Women in Investing with Terry hansen Mead.
1: I, I was watching the YouTube videos like, related to writing, etc. And a gal ended up winning some sort of a contest on all these different books and was showing off the titles of all the books that she ended up buying, like $600 worth. Oh, wow. And yeah, and a lot of them with like discounts. And so she had like stacks of books. But mm-hmm. One of them was something about writing your own obituary before you die, having yeah. someone write your own obituary before you die so you can edit it.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, that is funny, and you know what? That's so funny enough. Also, that's something that I've actually given a lot of consideration to over the years, Um, because it's more. I think, and it's very. It sounds very similar to kind of your initiative and your platform of piloting your life, and mine is very much writing your own story. So when it comes to manifesting the things that you want in your life, actually writing it down, like putting it down on paper, imagining exactly what it would look like, and then going through it and editing out all of the limiting beliefs you have around it. So, I mean, that's that's really cool and I think it's it's a good way of focusing your mind and your intentions and your actions.
1: Well, and I think Stephen Covey um to quote somebody from a long time ago, um talks about in 7 habits, one of them is what do you want written on your tombstone maybe yeah. and you know, begin with the end in mind and um yeah, so putting all that out there um, it was funny. I was just um, I, I screwed up and thought our call was at twelve thirty, so okay. I had a little bit of time in order to um, meditate. And so I was doing these guided meditations on setting boundaries mm-hmm. and um, you know uh, the self love that comes from setting boundaries and um, how how by setting appropriate boundaries and saying yes, you know honestly saying yes, honestly saying no having the discipline around there is really, um, you know, contributing honesty into your relationships. And so, um, all of this just kind of ties together in terms of what, you, yeah, mm-hmm. what, what do you want your story to be? What, what stories are holding you back, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, what are you, how are you contributing to some of, uh, the limits to what you can achieve or what you really want out of the world?
0: Oh, totally. Right. I love that, and I love the boundaries discussion, honestly. <laughs> yeah, and I think people, a lot of people almost don't like them because they don't want to be restrictive where they find it limiting, but there's a lot of freedom to be found in, in discipline, and I always like to think of boundaries as kind of defining the edges of your, your playground. You know, like, where do you want it to be? What do you want it to look like? And then you have your big old play space. <laughs>
1: No, I, well, and, and that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that she took through, cause I was able to thre- listen to like three of the five minute segments was talking about why, if you have trouble with boundaries, why that is, you know, one of them mm-hmm. is fear of rejection mm-hmm. and abandonment. And, uh, it was like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, my, after we get off this call, I'm going to go through, I've got 109 emails that are sitting, waiting to be dealt with just in one of my, just in my. Um, Terry some meet at Gmail account. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna go through because I think some of them I haven't wanted to respond to because I know I wanna say no. Mm-hmm. And I just haven't wanted to let anyone else down. And um it's not serving any of us by me. So I'm gonna go through, I'm gonna find ten of the emails, address them and say no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what a good goal in practice. And you know what? It actually it makes me feel even more privileged to be talking to you and that we got a yes. So I've and I'm I'm really excited to speak with you because I came across you um, because I saw that you were a speaker with Stella Labs, and I really like what they're doing, and I like how they're building and cultivating community, specifically, you know, in this investing space, and it's something that I feel like I can speak the language of at a passing rate, but it's still very esoteric to me. So I'm hoping to kind of give my listeners um, and myself a really good education over what what the landscape of this space is, um, how we can introduce more diversity and inclusion into it, and how we as women can play a proactive role in transforming that. But before we even get into any of that, I would love to hear about... Your story, just who you are. I know that you're from the big Area. I know that you put out a lot of great stuff, really great content. Talk to amazing people. But how did that even begin for you?
1: Is is that is is saying that there's a lot of great content <laughs> a way of saying wow, there's a lot of stuff coming out right now.
0: Um, <laughs> no, it's I I think that how you put out content is very strategic and thoughtful and digestible, and I. I think it speaks well to women specifically. So there has to be some great experience and learning for yourself involved in being able to produce that.
1: Well, it's a lot. It's actually a lot of trial and error. And when Mm -hmm. we talk about my podcast, I'll tell you how I screwed (laughs) up the first year and how I learned from that and, you know, (laughs) continue to learn and evolve at the, you know, tender age of 49. Um, It's, you know, I have a very interesting and diverse background. Yes, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I was born in San Francisco, grew up in the East Bay, and for the most part have never lived anywhere else. And it's usually one of the things that I try to put out there so that people understand you know, kind of where what my lens is that I look through, mm-hmm. but it also motivates me to look outside of the Bay Area. Um, you know, especially with my angel investing over the last four years, I am a firm believer that innovation happens everywhere, and I get very frustrated when I see either investors or founders or accelerators focusing exclusively on what comes out of the Silicon Valley or mm-hmm. San Francisco. Right. And overlook what's happening in other parts of our state, our country, and our world, not realizing that we, in the Silicon Valley, you know, represent such a small percentage of, you know, the needs and wants um, uh, of those, you know, of of the people in in our world and in our society. Mm. Um, But I do understand my privilege in growing up, you know, middle class, educated, in the San Francisco Bay Area, in a liberal space, and you know, you mentioned wanting to talk about diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. and um, I get very frustrated walking into rooms where I'm the only woman, or mm-hmm. it's it's all white people.
0: That's so um, funny. That was definitely a question I had for you. I'm like, don't you just get so disappointed when you walk into those rooms? <laughs> like, tell well, us tell longest, what it's like.
1: Well, like, for <laughs> the longest time, it was it was. Yeah, it wasn't really disappointment until recently. Mm -hmm. I think for the longest time, it was more like I didn't fit in. Mm -hmm. Like I I didn't look like anybody else. And I was actively looking for other people who, you know, looked like me, whether it was a woman, um, whether it was somebody who was in their mid 40s. Just because I really felt alone and I felt like I was um, like I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And it was only uh, only most recently that I, I came up with the, um, I can't, know. it was, oh, let me say that. How do I want to say this? When I was putting together the talk that I gave, the keynote that I gave at um, the women's venture summit in San Diego, I was doing some research about claiming our power as individuals and as uh, collectively as women. Mm. And in some of the research, I came across some stuff that was like, Oh my gosh, this is it. And what it was is um, we just need to claim our space. We just need to say, we belong this we're here, get used to it. Mm-hmm. And it was at that moment, it was like, yeah, why am I a trying to fight in to fight, to fit into places that don't want me, which is why I try to create other spaces that are more welcoming. Um, and why am I trying so hard to be accepted when I'm not really loving what it is that the other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And I think I've just been so conditioned for so long that there was something wrong with me, rather than acknowledging and you know celebrating that what I could bring to the table was different and that that difference was really needed in the room, at the table, in whatever environment that I was in. And it was less about who I was and what I brought, and it was more of a, re- a reflection of the resistance or the insecurity of the other people in the room.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, walking into those spaces, I I somewhat felt the same, but I think my approach was a a little, my frustration was different, because I almost, I feel like I walked in with a bunch of naivety, because I I don't know if you've noticed, but here in San Diego, it is kind of a bit of a melting pot, right? Like, we have all of these different cultures and diverse backgrounds, and, and they might be segregated by communities or where we live, but in general, we have many, many we have a pretty diverse population. And so walking into these rooms, especially in other cities, for me, it was like, it was always, well, what's their problem? Like, I, like, it, like I'm like Like, allowed to be here. What about you? And my di- disappointment came more from maybe a sense of boredom, how I was almost expecting everyone to have the same opinions and the same ideas, and I wasn't going to hear anything new. So... I'm wondering and tying back to what you're saying, you know, being a unique individual but also being a part of the collective. One, how do we cultivate that uniqueness? How do we identify what we stand for? How do we share that and then create or I guess find our place in that community? Ooh, you
1: you're not asking easy questions today. <laughs> um I think cultivating the uniqueness, you know, I think a little bit, let me talk broadly about women. Uh, Cause that tends to be where I spend a lot of my time these days focusing. And I talk about, and I'm talking about all women, uh, not just white women, not just middle-class women, mm-hmm. or not even just, you know, midlife women. Although that is also an area that I'm focusing on because mm-hmm. that's where I'm at is I think it's, it's owning and claiming our space Individually, but it's also respecting what others are bringing into it and helping them claim their space as well Um, In the month of October I started the hashtag lift not drag challenge because it came out of an ask me anything where I was talking to with another investor and two founders and there were some questions about um, why is it that we have this um, undertone of negative competition among women and and I was like, "Gosh, mm-hmm. you know, you bring up a really good point because I'm so frustrated with um, a lot of women coming from a place of scarcity, seeing that there's only room for one one spot at the table, mm-hmm. um, or seeing that for them to succeed, that somebody else has to fail." At which point, I was like, "This, this is where I absolutely reject the notion of a zero sum game." Right. We reject the notion of a zero sum game. We can look at things. Look at Uh, things less from a place of scarcity and more of a place for of abundance where the more we create the more space we create the more opportunities we create and the more that's available for all of us and I maybe I'm a little too Pollyanna-esque and idealistic but that's the world that I want to live in I don't want to live in a world where we are um, generally constrained by what somebody else makes available to us. Mm-hmm. So I think um like I'm doing with this challenge, I just back in September when I was on the call, it was like, okay, October, we're going to do a 31-day challenge where every day we do one thing to lift up, to support, to help another woman. It could be as simple as a compliment because sometimes we need one of those. Um because that also shows that we're being seen or it could be um, you know, making an introduction. It could be, um, making a recommendation out on LinkedIn. Um, and so I put that out there, came up with some graphics with my marketing person, um, of hot air balloons. Cause Mm -hmm. I love the idea of lifting up, um, that hot air balloon show. Plus Mm -hmm. it kind of goes with my whole aviation branding Mm -hmm. piece as well. And the, and the hashtag lift, not drag as well. And then I was talking to Annie Rogoski when I was interviewing her for my podcast, Piloting Your Life. See, all about Mm -hmm. aviation. (laughs) And and she said, oh, I have a bunch of ideas for you. And then it struck me. It was like, oh, it would be great if we could put out an idea a day for 31 days, just in case somebody is at a loss for what they could do for another woman. And so at the time of this recording, it's the middle of October. And the response has been so good. I am just absolutely delighted. It's global, so it's not just happening here in the Bay Area or in California. But um, I have some friends in other parts of the the world who are participating, and I'm just super happy to see that. I'm even get, that some people are like, "Wait, I do this all the time," and I'm like, "Well, they just keep doing it." You, you know, this, <laughs> this is for those people who are struggling mm-hmm. who somehow think that acknowledging somebody else's success or supporting somebody else's success or acknowledging another woman somehow detracts from their own success or space. And I think for some women, that's going to take some practice. And for other women, they're like, wait, I did that last week. Great. Do something else. Or, you know, I know you'll, you're, you just naturally do it. Mm -hmm. So I think in terms of cultivating uniqueness, it's, we have to claim our own space we need to not listen to some of the negative stuff that's around us. That's probably a projection of somebody else's insecurities and um, issues, and less about ours. And then also do what we can in order to support other uh, others in the room who may not look or um, who may not look or sound like us.
0: I love that and there are so many beautiful things that you're doing with your campaign like not only do you have this global reach but when you're living your values you're opening up the opportunity for others to participate and you are shifting paradigms and I'm I guess I'm I guess I'm extracting this from the sub. The subtext, right, where it seems like the paradigms are really the major blockers in this industry because there are so many breaks in logic to me, you know, when it comes to the thinking that there's not enough room at the table. I mean, the investing space is that it's the space of innovation and ideas. It's like, well make a bigger table, or make chairs for the table, or, you know, do something to where we can all be included and create something bigger than the original idea. And so I definitely feel like, one, this is helping to shift your paradigm, but I'm wondering if there are other ways that we can help shift this paradigm. Um, Because I know that in investing, pitching any kind of idea, it does require a business case, right? And I'm, wondering if you could help, you know, support the business case for women being at the table and not just an individual woman, but women collectively, like the value that we bring to this space.
1: Oh my gosh. Um, I want to address one of the things you said, which is um, investing startup, that whole, this whole ecosystem Mm -hmm. is supposedly about innovation and innovation obviously, you know, uh, it's, it's, there's always change around Mm -hmm. innovation. You're always looking to do something Mm -hmm. new and better and opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so it's an interesting paradox when you've got those people who have made a lot of money, have a lot of power and want to keep their hold on that Mm -hmm. at the same time, when the space really needs to be changing and evolving. And I think, um, that whole holding on to the power, holding on, um, to the money and trying to control all that and really dictate what's, what gets funded Mm -hmm. is um, inherently limiting. And and it it leads to some of the issues that we are seeing right now with some of the, the, the bigger named, you know, quote unquote tech companies, Mm -hmm. you know, we're seeing this with WeWork falling apart because, you had a whole lot of money being thrown at someone who seemed to fit the quote unquote profile and ends up being quite a, you know, whack doodle and creating very, um, very bad situations for investors, but ended up, you know, with what six or $700 million mm-hmm. in, you know, assets, expenses, whatever, as, as a result of that, you've got the, Ubers and Lyfts that have really bad unit economics. And so the whole um, the whole ride share thing has been propped up by venture money, um, keeping the prices down low. But now that those have gone public and the, the public markets look for profitability, they look for returns mm-hmm. in a different way, um, you're starting to see that crumble. I mean, just today I saw um, a founder in one of the Facebook groups that I follow on on women founders talk about the cost of an Uber ride from, you know, what was it, Soma to SFO, or another one that used to be like ten dollars, it's now forty dollars. And and I and I was talking, I was down in San Diego over the weekend for mm-hmm. SDSU's Family Weekend, and we took Lyft all over. Mm-hmm. So of course I I talked to all the Lyft drivers, find out what their stories are. And we were being charged seventeen or eighteen dollars for a ride, and the driver said, "Yeah, I'll get three dollars." Oh no. and so the Drivers are getting squeezed. The customers are getting squeezed, mm-hmm. and I think we're we're going to see some shifts. But those were things where there was um, it was growth at all cost. It was part of the blitz scaling methodology, um, and I think the the challenge in that is. Um, when you don't respect that others belong in the room and you have everybody looking like you know each other whether it's 92% male or was it you know 70% white male VCs and mm-hmm. 47% of them come from Harvard and Stanford you get a lot of groupthink and you get a lot of people who like to invest in people who look like them because it feels comfortable right. and that's the paradox you're supposed to be taking risks with early stage and later stage investing looking for big returns on your investment, and yet you're really limiting what it is that you'll invest in. So the second part of your question is, is around, you know, what, what is the business case? or What's the value in having greater diversity within investors, within um, startups? The business case for, and I'm just going to say diversity in general, Mm -hmm. whether just, um, just not looking like you know, just not looking like white males who come from Harvard and Stanford, Mm -hmm. um, is that the investors tend to see opportunities and things that they can relate to. And if you are a, let's say you're a white male who lives in a certain geography who maybe doesn't have a natural ability to empathize, there's a need or a desire for something that they can't relate to, and there's plenty of opportunity to invest in other things that are easy to relate to, they're going to naturally gravitate towards those things that are easier. So if you have a more diverse set of investors, then those investors can actually see opportunities in places that the existing investor set cannot. Mm -hmm. And with that brings about just a greater vision, it brings about, um, you know, more diverse products, probably products that are designed for a broader, let's say consumer or enterprise base, because you have people looking at it or investors looking at it from different directions. And the Mm -hmm. same thing with startup founders is a lot of startup founders create things from lived experiences. And so if you're only funding those that all come from the same lived experience, you're missing out on so much in terms of um, opportunity to meet pent up demand where there, there are actually dollars that will be spent and money to be made.
0: Yes, and that totally, it totally makes sense. And I definitely want to be, to be careful just in, in my own speak to make sure that, you know, we're not having a dialogue saying that the white man in charge is wrong, <laughs> or that those opinions or ideas aren't aren't valid. It, it just seems like the f- the formula currently, and as it has been, is really a byproduct of psychology and just familiar familiar environment. As you said, you know what what you can understand easily and what you can relate to. And I'm wondering, one, like, is the formula evolving at the rate that it needs to? when it comes to identifying successful opportunities and because it like you said how, you know, before the Ubers and the Lifts, and, you know, growth and scalability and how quickly that needed to happen, how that was kind of the formula for success. And even with WeWork, we're seeing that kind of fall apart, you know, that that doesn't really have longevity to it. So <laughs> for me, it makes sense to have the formula evolving at the same rate you know, as, as our cultural values. And that is definitely in support of more women, more diversity in the boardrooms, in, in those rooms where these decisions are being made. And I'm curious to know what you would think would happen if that formula did evolve. And I'll, I'll give you the background. I, I, I'm sure, um, My last podcast with Kate Eisler, she gave a nice stat of how we are 208 years away from equality. But if this formula, if this formula in this space of investing evolved quicker, I'm wondering what kind of effect that would have on that 208 years.
1: Oh my! I I loved that interview. By the way, (laughs) I'm now following her. Uh, That was such a great great.
0: conversation. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Uh, well, I mean, if the formula changes and it changes at a more rapid pace, my, my hope is that that 208 years can be reduced, um, you know, at the, you know, at the same rate or exponentially faster. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason why I say that is the more, the more, you know, money is power. And if we get more money into this, that really drives the, the support of innovation, the support of products and services that are meeting um, unmet needs with a broader market opportunity. Um, then, you know, my my hope is that, that that creates like a tsunami effect or just something where it just builds and builds and builds and builds. And it's not just a straight you know, um, that it's a straight line from here to there, but it mm-hmm. can actually stair step up and have greater impact. The, and, and to your point about, yeah, I'm not saying all men are bad. I'm not saying all white men are bad. Um, you know, there's definitely a psychology in there about we gravitate, naturally gravitate towards things that make us feel mm-hmm. more comfortable um, once again, the paradox: as investors, we should be early-stage investors, especially we should be taking greater risks, which means that we go outside of our comfort zone. Um, so it's it's kind of funny, um, but it's just I just feel like there's so much missed opportunity out there. And uh, a couple years ago, I mo- uh, moderated a panor- panel in Helsinki at Slush on the shifting demographics and the need for investors to shift shift with them. And I think it's going to be, you know, my question to Monique Woodard and Albert Wenger in that panel was, do we try to get the existing investors to really see these new, these other opportunities? Or do we create a whole new set of investors in order who already see these opportunities and get them to invest and then create massive FOMO for the other investors? (laughs) Really, really, what it comes down to is it's a combination. Mm-hmm. There are going to be some of those investors who are the existing investors who do control a lot, who are going to be willing to, um, uh, you know, practice radical empathy and see that there are needs that are mm-hmm. needs and desires that are outside of their own um, needs and desires. Something that they can't necessarily. Um, easily relate to, but they can go, yeah, I can see the business case for that. Those numbers make sense. And, you know, I can go in that direction. Um, And activating new investors is also fairly challenging. um, But if we don't start, then we're never going to get there. Mm -hmm. And the case in point is um, I think there's, there are some misconceptions around how venture funds are raised and um, who leads them. Mm-hmm. And that um, the the reality is, is that for new fund managers who are trying to raise from investors, their limited partners to raise funds, to invest in opportunities that we're talking about, more diverse opportunities, a lot of them don't have the network or connections and access to some of the investors or the investors are, you know, maybe a little bit more risk averse and see mm-hmm. that as um, you know, investing in a new fund manager without previous experience is risky. And a lot of these um, diverse, whether it's women or other, other represented, haven't had the the traditional experience or pathways to become fund managers to $100 million funds. Mm-hmm. And so what's, hap- what's happening is a lot of them are having to create, you know, proof of concept funds, whether they're $2.5 million funds to $10 or $15 million funds. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of impact that you can have. And usually you have to wait about three years, three years for your typical initial investing cycle. Um, The the outcomes on these are usually like seven to 10 years, but usually after three years, you're starting to raise the next fund. Mm -hmm. So let's say you raise, let's say a $5 million fund. Your next one might be a 10 to $12 million fund. And that takes another year. So you're four, you've got that. And then you're waiting another three years to go from a $12 million to a $25 million fund, hoping that your initial investments in years one through three were panning out so that you can establish your track record. Um, And I think it's it's not a matter of you go and you can just go out and raise a $100 million fund when you were a first-time fund manager without the the typical background. And once again, if you didn't have the opportunity to have the typical background, then it's harder to prove and it takes more time. The good news is we are seeing a lot more diverse um, fund managers who are are creating funds and raising funds. But a lot of them are early stage funds. And Mm -hmm. this presents another problem in that we might be able to get Some of these startups funded in early stages, but then when they need serious scale money, serious growth money, Mm -hmm. then we're back to the traditional fund managers who are investing in people who look like them. Mm -hmm. So you end up with a series A or a series B gap, financing gap. And so you've got, you know, we're trying to catch up the investors with the startups and it just, it, it makes it harder. And one of my biggest fears is around, um, you know, so you've got maybe these reluctant investors who don't want to invest in, you know, whether it's a woman's, uh, you know, woman led startup, or it's a black team, or it's a brown team, or, you know, it's an LGBTQ plus Mm -hmm. team or a combination thereof. So we'll just say marginalized or underrepresented. Mm -hmm. And they they are like oh you know we don't really want to invest and they wait and so maybe they the the founders are able to you know come up with something they get to a point but they just don't have the fuel in terms of funds to really scale and so they don't grow at the rate that a, a white male counterpart might or um, you know uh, or maybe they just don't succeed and it's less about their abilities and it's. Um, more about access to capital or access to resources. Mm-hmm. And so then my big fear is that these companies don't do well. And then these investors say, see, I told you so. <laughs> and, right. and I'm like the, 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 big circular issue with that is, I mean, you can just see it. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, it didn't do well. Therefore it's risky. Therefore I'm not going to put my money in that. and, and, and it's just like we've got to break mm-hmm. this cycle, this formula that you're, you were talking about um, that has worked. Now, the good news is, once again, we're starting to see some cracks. And we're starting to see um, the, the desire for profitability as, as, as a goal. I have felt like I have been out of step with a lot of these other investors because I keep I kept going back to business fundamentals. And I would say – Maybe I'm a little bit old school, but I would like to see a point where you're getting to profitability. Mm-hmm. I would like to see a point where you're actually monetizing whatever it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And there were so many investors who are so excited about growth at all costs, <laughs> and um, it, it didn't. They'll figure out the monetization strategy later. I was like, God, this just doesn't make a lot of sense for me because at some point someone's going to be left holding the bag Mm -hmm. and it wasn't going to be any of the companies that I invested in. So I think we're, we're starting, the winds are turning, the winds are changing. And I think, um, for those companies who have been focusing on, um, solid business economics and business fundamentals, um, I think there's, there's an opportunity for them to, to rise up and, and show that, yeah, maybe there was a different way, um, a different way. And the thing is, is that a lot of them are women led businesses because the numbers, the data shows that women do more with less largely because they have to Mm -hmm. get to profitability faster, greater return on investment, have more diverse teams all around. Um, I mean, it's the, the data shows it. And so it's just a matter of getting that data, out there a little bit more
0: yeah and you I loved all of that and, and just I'm almost caught up on this last point that you made about how women get to profitability faster because they have to it's almost as if this environment is creating you know better business women because we have to be more resourceful we have to be more innovative we have to problem solve better than anybody else and I'd be really excited just as you to see that that gap closed you know a lot or completely in the future and again it might be because of you know incorrect thinking to where correlation is not causation you know if you're you're on a waiting game and setting your expectations based on you know things like marginalization or you know just attributes that actually really don't hold water when it comes to building a business case if we're if we're closing that gap, I feel like we are just able to get a really a more realistic sense of what this space can do and how it can really impact the world.
1: Yeah, I think we're just we're just getting started on that. But to mm-hmm. your point about creating better businesswomen, I and maybe I'm just in a. little bit more of a negative mood, which doesn't Mm -hmm. go with the Pollyanna comment Mm -hmm. earlier. Um, but I actually think it creates a bigger barrier for a lot of women to really Mm -hmm. succeed with startups and their, in their businesses. And so in order to succeed, you really have to be, you know, um, truly exceptional and probably compromise in a lot of ways in your, in your personal life. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I'm not sure that that's sending the right message. And so I'd really like to see that change. I am seeing, um, you know, we're seeing pregnant women um, CEOs. Was it, was it uh, the head of the wing or Riveter? I'm not sure which one who was on the cover of magazine pregnant. It was like the first pregnant CEO on the cover of Mm -hmm. one of the magazines. And um, I'm also hearing more from, women founders who are saying, yeah, I am going to take some maternity leave, but I'm going to set up the structure so that it allows for this. Mm -hmm. Or I am going to create, um, time in the evening for my family, um, in order to, you know, and then maybe I'll get back on the computer afterwards, but I need, um, I need greater flexibility, but I refuse to compromise my personal life for this. I was recently talking to a woman who was considering, um, taking a CEO position uh, in a company, and she was, you know, five or six months pregnant, and had expressed some concerns about that. And I said, "They know you're pregnant. Um, as you're negotiating it, just now is the time to establish the boundaries. Establish, you know, how you're planning to operate, and um, you can put together a case as to, you know, how this is going to make you more effective, and how you're still going to be able to be successful." But this brings up another point in terms of redefining what the definition of success is. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that is a super sore point with me, especially here in the Silicon Valley, where you've got the Tim Ferriss's and the Mm -hmm. Gary V's and the Jack Dorsey's and, you know, really these crazy people who are driving the definition of success Mm -hmm. that really was, um, it really doesn't align with most of us. And, I mean, it really is crackalicious. Well, that's not even a good word. Uh, it's wackadoodle. I'm making mm-hmm. up words now for you. <laughs> no,
0: I love it. It's totally, totally wackadoodle. Yeah, they, they have very, very large measuring sticks that I think a lot of people want to, to reach for. But I think even going back to the, the point at the beginning, bringing your own individual uniqueness and allowing space for other people to be unique. And, you know, within that same space, using your own measuring stick for success I think could put some, some momentum behind what's trying to be accomplished here.
1: Yeah. And I think that that is, that is a place where we're going to have to hold firm Mm -hmm. um, ourselves when we're looking at social media and potentially comparing ourselves to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, knowing that how we define our own success is how we define our own success. And mm-hmm. it is unique and it is personalized and to not get caught up in the comparison game and looking at what other people are doing or how they're getting there. Um, which, <clears throat> excuse me, which brings me up to, you know, there's still barriers to opportunity um, that I think we need to have greater awareness of and greater I'm not sure the word sympathy is, is, is just a great awareness, awareness around, yeah. um, this came up in a, a couple of articles that I read when I was researching my book, um, about how some people, uh, primarily millennials, but, um, some had student debt and some did not. And some of them were looking around and seeing some of their friends who were living in, um, you know, in places in New York city, fully paid for living the life. Um, no student debt. Well, they were living, you know, in a place with six other people, struggling to pay off um, their debt, definitely not having any sort of equity in, in some sort of a property, mm-hmm. and the the differences in terms of opportunities that are available when everything is when you have no debt and where you're living is covered um, because you're you know you come from family money maybe. Mm-hmm. And the the freedom you have to choose where you work, what you do, et cetera, versus someone who's um, saddled with, with student loans and doesn't feel like they have the economic freedom in order to choose what it is that they really want to be doing in the world. Um, you know, this is where healthcare comes into play because mm-hmm. a lot of people end up staying in particular jobs because healthcare is expensive and mm-hmm. they can't risk not having healthcare uh, or even, um, if you've won the socioeconomic lottery and are able to go to a really good school and get access to not only just the resources, but also the network right Mm -hmm. across the Bay. I live, you know, in Redwood city, mid peninsula in Silicon Valley. And right across the Bay is my alma mater, Cal state Hayward, which Mm -hmm. is now Cal state East Bay. And over there, it is the, the just, I mean, it's 15 miles from the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters, you know, the sandhills of the world. And over there, Cal State East Bay is the least expensive state school, I think, in the state of California. Most, a lot of the students who go there, um, first time to college, college. Um, uh, a lot of them had to work through high school to help support their families. um, And then, you know, they're scraping by to just get a state education and even, and there there's so much innovation and grit um, in a lot of these students who really had to work really hard and just didn't have the opportunities because of the socioeconomic lottery. Mm -hmm. And yet Silicon Valley completely overlooks this whole population and it's 15 miles from, from the heart of Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. I actually see that as a huge opportunity and would really like to see um, Silicon Valley really tap into that, provide greater support. Um, I was trying to work with the head of the Dean of Business over there on building a, a bridge program, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, once a month having investors or founders um, come over and be part of conversations, panels, build that network so that. Those who didn't win the socioeconomic lottery mm-hmm. could get access to those who could provide them with opportunities that wouldn't otherwise be available to them. Um, fortunately, that program um, just didn't quite work out.
0: But, you, but you know, yeah. But I think your head and your heart are completely in the right space with that, and literally bridging, you know, across these weird little barriers and boundaries that are determined by, you know, socioeconomic status. But I think, you know, the more we can expose each other to, like, different learning experiences, the more we can expand our worlds and our purview in that way, I think this space will only get better.
1: Yeah, and, and this goes back to, you know, what do we all gain by doing this? And I think it's endless. The mm-hmm. opportunities are endless. The, what, what we can all experience and how our world can really be improved it's, it's endless. It's not, you know, life is not pie. It is not a zero sum Mm -hmm. game. Um, I mean, it's just, so I'm super excited about Mm -hmm. seeing more and more focus on this so that we can really just see what the heck could happen with this. I I think, I mean, this is what keeps me hopeful Mm -hmm. at times of major political turmoil and, you know, war, areas and other parts of of the world I mean I have to focus on this to get myself out of bed in the morning and not be Mm -hmm. too demoralized about (laughs) the the forces too demoralized by the forces Mm -hmm. that are trying so hard to hold on to their quote-unquote power Mm -hmm. because they don't see that there's an opportunity in expansion and they only see um they they just they only see it as a zero-sum game
0: ah well I mean, I think that that's a really great segue into the work that you're doing with your podcast and your book. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, about how you're bridging gaps and lifting people up and maybe even, I'm, so I know that you have the aviation theme because I saw that you're also a helicopter pilot. So <laughs> I would love to to just hear about how you bring that all together and then how we can all support you.
1: Well, thank you. Um, yeah, so Yes, I am a commercially rated helicopter pilot, uh, currently without a helicopter to fly, but that is, that's a, that's a longer, unfortunate story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so four and a half years ago, I started, I got into angel investing because I was frustrated by the arrogance of science within biotech, med device, diagnostic, digital Mm -hmm. health companies. I am a, a business person who understands technology and uses it to optimize business performance. And I worked in an environment within life sciences that didn't appreciate technology. So my whole value prop um, was pretty much not valued. And mm-hmm. so I was talking to a helicopter buddy of mine, Stu, and he suggested I get into angel investing. And the and this the story is important because it talks about because it leads into how I. I'm often the only woman in the room. When I applied for my application, when I applied for Sandhill Angels, which is an angel group up here in, in the Bay Area, I was told by an old white guy um, who was the membership guy, looked a lot like my dad. And he was like, well, the board may not approve your, pro- your application. I'm like, why not? And mm-hmm. he said, you don't get the profile. <laughs> Goes back to what we've been talking about today. And I didn't have it within me to ask him, well, what's the profile? And why does that matter? Um, it took me, it took me about a year and a half to realize that, understand the profile, understand that actually the value that I brought was that I didn't look like everybody in the room and mm-hmm. I didn't have the same background as everybody in the room. Right. And founders really appreciated that. Other investors really appreciated it, just not necessarily within Sand Hill Angels, but I was listening, you know, I jumped in with both feet because I wanted to prove that I belonged and so I wanted to learn as much as possible and I started listening to a ton of podcasts. So everything from the 20-Minute VC to Office Hours with Spencer Roscoff to, you know, you name the startup or the investor podcast. And I quickly realized that it was the White Bro Show and there were very few people who looked like me Um you know, I started Angel Investing at 45, and there were not a lot of women that I saw around me, and I certainly didn't see any or hear any in any of these programs. And I thought, well, I can't be the only person who's struggling to see themselves in, you know, in any of this. And so I thought, um, wouldn't it be great to provide a platform to give voice to others who embody the notion of being the pilots in their own lives? And so I started that in September of 2017. And the goal was just to interview people so that when um, somebody might not be able to uh, who needed to see it, to be it, that I Mm -hmm. could provide showcase. So I interviewed just a diverse group of people um, to show possibility. And what I found out is that I completely missed. Um, When you go broad like that, it means from week to week, your audience doesn't know what they're going to get. Mm-hmm. And so year two, I narrowed down because um, I also realized that I really wanted to focus on women. I did um, an investor tour. I put it together for myself with, mm-hmm. uh, in Paris, Tallinn, Estonia, Nice, Berlin, um, in June of 2018. And during that time, I was talking about early-stage investing, innovation happening anywhere, investing in women founders, and uh, investing in digital health. And what I realized in having a number of different conversations is I really wanted to focus on lifting women. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to activate more women investors and um, really you know, take advantage of all that we bring to the table to really open up market opportunities and lift up those who are providing us as investors with investment opportunities, but also building the products and services for the rest of us. And so then the next season of my podcast, September to December of last year, I was interviewing women investors, um, women founders who'd raised uh, Series A and beyond, and then anyone who supported the ecosystem. And, um, but I kind of got a little bit bored and realized that as a midlife woman, I was just not seeing enough. And I decided to write my book, which is the same as my podcast, mm-hmm. called Your Life," the same mm-hmm. as my podcast to focus specifically on midlife, um, which is really 40 to 65. But in doing my research, realized that Gen Xers, um, which I'm right smack in the middle of the Gen X generation. We are so completely overlooked um, that I wanted to provide something for Gen X women to feel like we're not isolated. We're not alone. We're not crazy that there's a lot of opportunity in midlife. And I was frustrated by the women ahead of me who didn't share much and I, didn't, I don't want the women coming up behind me to be as blindsided by some of the stuff that I experienced in my 40s. Um, and I want women to be better prepared coming into their 40s. And so that's why I wrote the book, Piloting Your Life. And um, I'm still passionate about health care for women. So the last season, um, January through April of my podcast, um, was all about women's health. Because I wanted to showcase the need for more dollars, research dollars. Mm-hmm. I wanted to showcase to investors the market opportunity and investing in startups with products and services for women's health, um, just because it's a huge blue ocean opportunity. I wanted to educate um, individuals on you know, how little we know, how much we know, and to be better advocates for our own health and to not get gaslit in the healthcare system, that Mm -hmm. we do know our own bodies, we do know our own health, um, situations and no matter what, you know, what some healthcare providers and doctors might be pushing, pushing back on. Um, and so then this season is all about things accompanying, um, the book, but it really, it's, it's all coming together in terms of, you know, for me, a new investment thesis, um, I'm, I love Melinda Gates's new language around um, she's taking a billion dollars. I don't have a billion dollars to expand and enhance the influence and power of women. Mm -hmm. And so my investment thesis has expanded into that. The work that I'm doing, whether it's, you know, the lift not drag or um, really encouraging midlife women to claim their lives, to design and live a life of their own creation um, and really expand that for all women and for girls that we do belong to claim our unique selves, as to use your language, and that by us claiming our power individually and collectively, we really can change the world for the better.
0: Incredible! Yeah, I think I think that you have a very very beautiful lens that you look through, and I'm so happy that that you share that with others and not just in your own unique way, but also helping them, you know, to see through their own unique lens. Um, it's, it's incredible. And I think it's much needed. And I can't wait to see all of the many more beautiful things that will come out of this. Like, yeah, it, me
1: too. Cause I have absolutely no idea where this is going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure. And you don't have to, right? You just have to take <laughs> one step in front of the other and, and believe in what you're doing and, you know, be an advocate for yourself and for others, and it matters. It makes a difference. Even if we, yeah, if we don't see it all the time or if there's some kind of latency effect, it, it matters because you're, you're paving a path for even people like me and anyone else who listens to this, you know, who, who is interested in this space but intimidated by it, you know, for the same reasons that you and I both felt. Um, it does make a difference. So thank you.
1: Yeah. And the more of us in the room, the, the less intimidated. But even if you're mm-hmm. in there, um, you know, I I found a quote from an article that I read for the keynote that I was putting together about how at the end of Wizard of Oz, Dorothy finds out that she had the power all along. Mm-hmm. And I want us to be not the early stage Dorothy. I want us to be the later stage Dorothy. Mm-hmm. where We realized we had the power all along. Um the and the, the, the one of the other things I just want to point out really quickly is I I've, I've struggled with um, feeling like I've I'm enough you know constantly you know when will I feel like I'm enough when will mm-hmm. I stop trying to prove myself that I prove that I belong and I'm actually doing much better last two weeks I've had like this massive you know internal mental mind shift but one of the things that I researched from the book talked about how um one of the reasons why it's so hard for us women is we are constantly bombarded with messaging, both overt and subtle about how we don't belong Mm -hmm. and um, how 95% of the world was designed not for or by us. Annie Rogoski talks about it in an unraveling pink podcast episode from, I think it was last September. And we are constantly adapting and shifting and we're getting the messaging that we just don't belong. And Honestly, that's, that's that's a lot to take on an ongoing basis. So in the moments where we're feeling a little less, a little less comfortable, a little less like we belong, you know, when for me, I take a moment and go, just remember what we're battling on a regular basis. The, the barrage of, you know, whether it's messaging or undercurrents and energy or, you know, just the obstacles that are thrown in our paths and not cleared you know, we have Mm -hmm. to clear all that out, that it's, it really does take, you know, superhuman effort to really combat that to really be able to move forward on a regular basis. And so on those days that I'm just not feeling so great, and I have to practice a little extra self kindness, I'm, I'm trying to remind myself, it's like you're doing good work, despite all of the resistance and the obstacles that are in the way.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're, We're working hard collectively to remove them together. So you're not alone, as you said earlier. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And
1: I love the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And there's so many others that are doing good work, which is Mm why um, I, you know, I try really hard to promote and to support so that, um, you know, I don't feel like I'm the only one who's doing
0: Mm -hmm. it. Well, we appreciate you. Thank you so much, Terry.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, for all the work that we do, you know, we can use the hashtag ripple effect because every little drop creates some sort of a positive ripple effect.
0: I love that. Yeah, we will do that. Terry, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. Your knowledge and insight is incredibly encouraging, and thank you for being an advocate for women in this space. To learn more about Terry, you can look her up on our website at terryhansonmead.com and be sure to check out her amazing podcast, Piloting Your Life, where she interviews female founders, female investors, and those who are supporting and encouraging both. I've listed the links in the description box below. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Click that little five-star button as the small effort really makes a difference in our ability to share more stories with a broader audience. Consider it your investment in women. (laughs) Okay, until next time, everyone. Cheers!